This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, nothing to talk about this week, certainly um, out of Washington, but there is a lot of news, as we say. Um, impeachment drama continuing to unfold today, and as it does, Ryan Teague Beckwith is our political reporter at Bloomberg News. He reminded us that every presidential scandal comes with its own language. So let's talk about that. He joins us on the phone from our bureau in the nation's capital. Hey, Ryan, good to talk with you. Um, so tell us about this and kind of, as you say, every scandal kind of has its own language. What specifically for this particular time around with President Trump? Well, I think um, the uh, if yesterday's word was nothing burger, which was what uh, Republican allies of uh, President Trump were calling this scandal, um, today's word probably is roadmap. Um, that is uh, a term you might recall from Watergate, which was what people called the um, the, the information that prosecutors sent over from the grand jury to Congress, which basically laid out how to go about investigating Watergate. Uh, and I think that the whistleblower's complaint, which was made public this morning, is, has been called a roadmap. It, it is uh, pretty clearly a good roadmap for what to expect next and uh, uh, where, the, where the investigation may go next. And so this, this idea, I really like the way you've been reporting this, Ryan, because so much of it is about the phrasing and the framing on either side. And even as you look at you know the different... I, dare I say, partisan television networks that are sort of taking sides on this, the way they're framing different hearings, the way they're framing different uh, documents that, that come out becomes increasingly important. How have you seen the language change on either side of the aisle, maybe especially on the Republican side, as you start to see some pretty influential Republicans at least changing their, their tone, if not the, the substance? Yeah, well, the, um, another word that you're going to hear is troubling, um, which is a, a way of indicating that you're maybe not happy with um, what went down in the phone call, but that you may not end up coming down on the side of viewing it as an impeachable offense. Now, um, recall that uh, during the Clinton impeachment, one of the first people to speak up about it was Senator Joseph Lieberman, a Democrat, who condemned uh, President Clinton's behavior in no uncertain terms, but later went on to acquit him on both charges. So it's, you know, if this ends up as a full-blown impeachment, uh, these initial statements, it's troubling, it's whatever, don't really give you much of a sense of where senators may fall. Right, right. And so who are you looking toward as, as you sort of look at the litany of people who, you know, we've yet to hear from we we've yet to hear from substantially that who could change the conversation uh i i i think that you're always going to be looking at the ones who are running in swing states or blue states yeah. or republicans susan collins cory gardner um look for mitt romney who was not a big trump fan to begin with um if if he takes a stronger stance that this is you know in fact more than troubling uh, that can be a signal to others. Um, you know, there's a safety in 
It's like uh, like biking. You never want to be the front person in the competitive uh, road biking. You want to draft behind the front runner because you're not using as much energy. So um, so far, I don't think I think we're we're still in the phase of people saying this is troubling, um, but not ultimately something that they view as an impeachable offense. Well, and I do wonder what's going on behind closed doors, certainly within the Republican offices of Congress, whether or not folks um, agree maybe behind closed doors that this is an impeachable, impeachable uh, offense or whether they still believe that it's you know just Democrats going after a Republican president. Um, you know, there have been multiple stories over the last couple of years of senators, in fact, Republican senators, off the record saying basically that they were very unhappy with Trump and his behavior. Um, there was a recent report of, you know, some uh, speculating how many senators would, would impeach him if it were a secret vote. But ultimately, that doesn't really matter. Like, it's, it, you know, I might tell you off the record that uh, I don't like my in-laws or something like that, but right. I wouldn't say it to them, right? <laughs> and so it's not going to affect anything. But uh, isn't this a reminder? I hope your in-laws aren't listening, no, Ryan. I, I like my in-laws. I'm just kidding. But you know but, what I'm But saying? it's a like, reminder, Ryan, of... Washington being broken to some extent, no? Uh, I mean, a lot of this is. The, the, the thing with Hunter Biden is, is not, there's nothing illegal about it, it and, and it barely passes muster as scandalous within Washington. But I think to a lot of people outside of Washington, it's untoward. And it's hard for some of them to distinguish between that and, uh, you know, much worse behavior on the part of politicians. And I think that leads to a kind of cynicism that, you know, uh, Washington, they're all that way. Um, right. Well, and that's such an interesting point, especially in the context of a lot of the criticism that's been leveled against President Trump and his family. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's 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 kind of weird to be having an argument about Hunter Biden when Ivanka Trump is still actively applying for trademarks in China. Um, while also serving in a weird nebulous uh, role in the White House. Um, and as Don Jr. is uh, going around the country campaigning for the president while Eric Trump runs the Trump Organization, which President Trump has not divested himself from. But uh, like I said, I mean, uh, it, it, there's a point where a lot of people in the, uh, outside of Washington just view this as a pox on both houses. Right. Right. It's a really interesting point and clearly plays into the much larger discussion about the 2020 election, given that former Vice President Biden is a front runner. Ryan Teague back with always great to get your insights political reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from our Washington bureau. All right, well, let's get a look at the markets through the lens of the munis. One of our favorites back with us, Charles Durain, president and CEO of Durain Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from lovely Corpus Christi, Texas. Charles, great to have you back with Carol and myself. So what's a guy to do in a market like this where the headlines are fast and furious? The IPO market for equities is uncertain, to say the least. How's it feel in Muniland? Well... First of all, let me do my, uh, my disclaimer. The information I use today comes from Bloomberg and other sources. It's not intended as an investment advice. I only provide investment advice for my clients. Okay, so the muni market is healthy, very healthy. It's had a very nice year. Rates are still interesting. They're lower than they have been. You know, I would suggest in this particular yield curve, and usually I take a 30 I like to I like to mess with thirty year bonds, but at this point, 
when rates are so slow or so low, I like a 10-year because any rise, and at, at some point we're going to have a rise. Meanwhile, everybody contributes, continues to buy um, the funds. The funds have had their, the bond funds have had 37 straight weeks of inflows into this. It's not historic yet, but it's getting close. So munis are alive and well, and, and they're really an important part of your portfolio. If you had a muni that you bought about a year ago with the, with the coupon and everything else, you probably had a return somewhere between 8 and 12 percent, depending on your coupon. And so, and, and look at the volatility you haven't had. I mean, year-to-date, the Dow's up about 15 percent with a huge amount of volatility. S&P up 18, NASDAQ up 20. But huge volatility. Not so much in the muni market. It's been a safe, healthy place to go. In fact, municipalities can issue a lot more debt than they're issuing. Uh, they're calling a lot. A lot is maturing. And instead of issuing more, they're issuing less. So, which means munis ought to do well for a while because you've got too many dollars chasing too few goods. Right, right. Basic, it's just basic supply and demand. Are there any that's issues? That's right. Hey, Charles, are there any issues in particular when you look at some of the cities around uh, the country or even around the world that you find well, particularly? I know we always bring up Puerto Rico with you because I think we all continue to follow that story. Any issues in particular that you would commit new money to at this point? Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about committing new money. I'm just saying that if you look at Illinois, you know, a 10-year bond in the rest of the United States, a AA, is about a one6 and Illinois is 3.02. If you look out 30 years, Illinois is 3.5% for 30 years versus about 2 for other bonds. So there's a lot of risk in Illinois, but there's also a lot of return or reward out there. So the question is, how much risk is a client willing to take to get a little bit better? I mean, you can take a little bit of this. I wouldn't put it all there. But the point is, you look around. There are opportunities in the muni bond market. And okay. so, so Charles, does a macro global issue like a trade war, how does that play into your thesis? Well, trade war is slow down business. Business slows down, interest rates go lower. Munis go higher. That's what's happened. A lot of stuff that we bought last October with a 4% coupon is now 108, 109, 111. Plus you had the, the 4% coupon. So they've done very well with this trade war, right? The lower rates go. I mean, look, if you can get a, if you look at a 10-year treasury at a 169 and a 10-year muni at around a 150, the muni's a better deal. Hey, listen, before okay. we go, because we've just got about 30 seconds left here, Charles, we understand you're retiring. Well, I'm retiring from the brokerage business, but I have other businesses. And by the way, just because I'm retiring doesn't mean I'm giving up my Bloomberg. It's, I've had it for 30 years. It's the reason I've gotten very successful. And Bloomberg Pick is the best thing on it. I'll manage my own portfolio of municipal bonds using Bloomberg Pick because who wouldn't want to do that? Who wouldn't want to be able to find the best bonds out there? All right, full disclosure, we didn't prep you on this. We know you <laughs> no. love your Bloomberg. You're a devoted, devoted customer. We hope, we hope you get some time to play golf or do something in your uh, downtime as well. Charles, thank you so much. Charles Durain. Thank you. He's president and CEO of Durain Wealth Management. On the phone from Corpus uh, Christi, Texas, someone we've talked to a lot over the years. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
All right. Well, earlier today, I got to catch up with John Foley, the CEO of Peloton, and it was a big day. The company trading for the first time on the NASDAQ pricing last night at 29, but that's not where it opened. It opened lower. Here's part of that conversation where we talked a lot about why not. Uh, Disappointed with how it came out in terms of the first trade. You went, uh, you, you sold it at 29. It opened uh, at 27, I believe. What, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, what we make of it is, is it's an interesting time in the markets. I mean, there's a lot of political things, business things. There's um, anxiety. You know, the markets are on edge. I don't have to tell you that. This is what you cover. So, um, you know, some disappointment. But the biggest thing is we're playing the long game. We see this as, you know, literally building more millions and millions of uh, subscribers around the globe in the coming years. And, uh, you know, now we have the money to do that. We are fully funded after this uh, after this today's uh, primary. So we're feeling confident. And when you think about sort of the, the last couple of days and really the last couple of weeks, you, you mentioned the markets. I mean, WeWork obviously is on everybody's mind. It's a tricky IPO market, uh, to say the least. Do you have a sense of sort of where the miscalculation was or if there was one? Yeah, I will tell you, uh, Jason, this is my eighth fundraise for Peloton. Yeah. And it's always been this funny thing where people either see it or they don't. And so there's believers and there's non-believers. The people that have believed and bet on Peloton and invested in Peloton for every one of the rounds for eight years now have been very, very, very happy. And we're going to continue to delight the uh, capital partners who, who, who invest in us. Uh, you mentioned fully funded. So yeah. What are you going to do with some of that money? What does expansion look like? At this yeah, point? so we're doing things like uh, building a $50 million uh, television streaming studio here in New York City, another $50 million studio in London where we'll hire our foreign language instructors. So the German instructors are being hired out of the London studio to stream to our German market, which we open in, um, I think, 60 days. So um, we're investing in new content. We're investing in new verticals. We brought the tread market last year in new markets. We have Canada and the UK and Germany. It's really we're in investment mode. So um, someone earlier today was saying you're losing money. It's like, no, it's semantics. We're, we're investing money, and we're, we feel, feel very good about what we're doing. And how do you feel about the consumer market? You sell a very high-end product. We are in a bull market. We can we continue to be, other yeah. than some of the volatility that, that we're experiencing. What do you hear back from your customers, and maybe more importantly, your potential customers, about their willingness to you know, write a big check or charge something pretty big on their credit card? Yeah, so one of the most important things we think about a Peloton is the, the optics on affordability. If you have a Peloton bike, and you and your living partner ride it, it's an insane value vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis anything else. So we, um, interestingly, I know, Jason, you, you kind of wrote the book on fitness, so you know this, but fitness has been a recession-proof category for the last 15 years. More dollars went into uh, fitness in 2008 and 2009 as they did every year. So it's a growth, you know, secular growth over the last 15 years. And we think if we create the best value in fitness, you know, if you ride your bike, on average, our bikes are ridden 12 to 14 times a month. So you divide that by 39, you're paying a couple dollars for a workout. That's obviously, you know, orders of magnitude better than going to the boutique fitness world. And we're going to show over time that's an even better value than going to the gym. And so as you think about, you know, the, the value especially, do you think about lower price products, either existing versions of what you have or, or different uh, price points? Yeah, so in the years to come, I, I could see us with a better, best strategy against uh, our bike uh, vertical and our tread vertical. But even today, at $58 a month for the Peloton bike, dividing that by two, because you and your living partner can both ride it, that's $29 a month. 
for the best piece of fitness equipment ever created. Uh, Men's Health called it the best cardio machine on the planet. You can get that for $29 a month per person uh, for the hardware, and then you pay the $39. It's an insane value, again, if, if you're using it, and people do use it. Um, two years ago, uh, people were riding it six or seven times uh, a month, and now it's doubled in the last two years of, as far as the uses and engagement in our content. So people loved it then, and they love it a lot more now. So now that you're public, you're going to get a lot more questions about how you're spending money, where you're spending money. You have described the company in the S1 and, and uh, in the roadshow as all sorts of things, a technology company, a media company. It obviously does a lot more. Where will you be primarily spending money? Is this a content uh, push that's coming? Yeah, I would say at our core, we cannot hire software engineers fast enough. So we are a software company, tech company at our core. We've had to learn our way into media. Now we have 13 Emmy award-winning producers, and we just hired this fantastic new chief content officer in, in Jen Cotter. So she's going to build one of the most special you know, media divisions uh, in any category. But at our core, to your question, the investment is going to go into technology. Of course, we're going to open more retail stores and logistics and more markets and all this stuff that starts to show how multifaceted Peloton is. But certainly, software engineering is at our, is at our core. So for all the folks out there who have a Peloton bike or a tread or are thinking about buying one of those, what else have, have you got in mind for them? You know, we hear about, like, growing machines and other things that you may be uh, coming out with. Give us a peek behind the curtain. Oh, it's tough, Jason. We're not announcing products, but I can, I can tell you I think rowing is a fantastic workout. Well, all right. Well, uh, that's a very <laughs> concise answer uh, to that question. What else do you see from a competitive uh, landscape? Because you're competing with boutiques in, in many ways. You've made the case about price, but who do you see coming along? There are other people who've tried to be, in the same way that people have tried to be the Uber of something, they've tried to be the Peloton of something. Who do you yeah. worry about? Every, every once in a while I'll hear about somebody being the Peloton of something, and I'm like, if it's worth being, if it's, if it's worth being the Peloton of that, Peloton will be that, <laughs> is, is the back of my um, uh, half playful, half serious. Yeah. But uh, we, uh, we don't see like-minded competition. When I think about like-minded competition, it would be a very well-capitalized technology company. And to, to date, that doesn't exist. I feel like we have our, a seven-year economic miracle of our own where we don't have like-minded competition for seven years, so a seven-year head start, which we feel pretty good about, to your point, about the brand and the, and the membership. But we do not think too much about uh, competition. We, we focus on our members. We are member-centric. Everything we do is around delighting more members and delighting our existing members more with better software, uh, better content, more content, more value for the $39. So that's kind of our true north. And do you have, is there an upgrade cycle that, that happens in this sort of business? Because, again, this is more expensive than buying an, an iPhone. But clearly an Apple, they count on people sort of coming back for more of the latest and greatest. Is that part of the business? It is not, Jason, and it's a beautiful part of, of why we, um, we love Peloton is uh, we don't need people to upgrade. They're, they're paying us the subscription, and we, um, uh, we make $39 a month, and we delight our members for that $39 a month, they, and they could do that for 20 years, and we'd be happy. So they don't need to buy new hardware. Right. To your question about the upgrade cycles, we are on our third generation of tablet yeah. on the bike. So uh, we recently emailed our early members and said, hey, 
um, we're going to stop sending OTA software updates to your tablet because it's old. Think of your iPhone 4. Right. You know, it's, it's antiquated vis-a-vis -vis the 11. Uh, but we offered to, at our cost, give them a new, sell them a new tablet so that they could effectively get a brand new Peloton bike with a brand new screen and brand new chipset after five years, and then they'll be happy for another five years. So right. we're in it with them. We want them to be happy. We want them to continue paying their subscription. So it is a unique business. Right. You, you bring up Apple. We don't really have a metaphor for what we're doing, and we're having fun, but we are listening to our members and making sure they're happy. All right. So I'm hearing in my ears, stock jumping a, a little bit all over the place. It's down a, a little bit. So what's your final case? The you know, stock's down about 5.5%. Why should people be buying today? Well, uh, we've always proven the naysayers wrong. Uh, we think the total addressable market and, and where we're taking, we believe Peloton will be a winner-take-all global technology platform. And uh, there's 183 million people around the world with gym memberships. If we can get them more fit at a better location with better hardware, better software, better instructors at a better value, we think that this is a very, very big opportunity, and we're poised now. We have the balance sheet. We have the team. We have a great, fantastic leadership team, fantastic culture, great brand, great members, great net promoter score. We think that this is going to be a special company for the ages. And that was John Foley, the CEO of Peloton. He's been on this show before with us. Carol, we actually did an event, uh, or we did a broadcast, I should say, from Peloton Homecoming. Got a real sense of the community there, and I was talking with John uh, offline about that. That conversation happening literally moments after uh, the first trade came through on the NASDAQ this morning. Well, you and I were just talking. Both of us have a Peloton, so to be fair. But what's interesting is they are a hardware company. They are a software company. They have to think about content. There's a lot of things, and I know in their prospectus, they threw a lot of stuff out there. But I do, you and I were just just kind of saying, you know, the app where you can kind of reach a much wider audience, um, I think will be a very key part of their future and also providing a, a lower cost model. Right. And that's one thing that I'm really interested in. He alluded to that uh, during our conversation that, you know, down the line, maybe especially for the treadmill, I think, I mean, that's sort of as you talk to people, that would be the obvious place that they would do that because it's a $4,000 treadmill. Right. And so you do wonder, I mean, that's that's way, way high for a treadmill that, you know, you're going to put in your basement. It is a beautiful product. I've run on it. It is incredible. Right. Um, but is there a way to get that at a lower cost and, you know, get more subscribers in there because that treadmill market is huge. The total addressable market is massive here and that's what they're gunning for, expanding to Germany. And so just uh, one other thing that came up while I was down there, when they're in the US, the UK, and then Germany, they will be in the three biggest uh, Western exercise markets. So being sticky, growing revenues, uh, and making sure that it doesn't cost so much to get new users. I think these are going to be some of the key things going forward. But they got to convince investors. Yeah. That's clear from the reaction today. A foggy day in London Town. So in the magazine this week, it is the day after the No Deal Brexit version, where it's not business as usual. This story in the politics section of the magazine this week. Joe Mays is Brexit reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from London. Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Joel, how many stories have you done on Brexit in the magazine? Uh, a lot, a lot. But this one's different uh, because it's sort of a postcard from the not-so-distant future. Um, how do you do something like that? Uh, 
it's it's technically a work of fiction, but it's reported fiction. So I'm thinking of this as like a new genre in general, uh, reported fiction. There you go. It, but in all seriousness, um, we wanted to do this article because there are massive economic implications to what might happen just around the corner, which is a no-deal Brexit. And so we, we really actually, and, and Joe did an amazing job working on this with Alex Morales, we actually talked to people and basically imagined what the day after Brexit looks like. Joe, how, how, did, how has this article been received so far? Yeah, it's, it's been received very well. I think um, people appreciate kind of putting into context what that first day would be like. I mean, there's so much dispute about whether Brexit's a good thing or a bad thing. So I think that people have valued a kind of deeply reported account, which takes real characters, real people, really understands their situation, and then puts them on that kind of first day context with all we know, and just explain how the day goes from there. Yeah, it's, it's been well received. And, and how is that day going to go? Well, so as you say, we, we follow multiple characters during the day. So, for example, we have a truck driver moving goods from the UK to the EU. We have a sheep farmer on the Irish border. We have a biscuit maker in Scotland. And we tried to find individuals for whom there could be some significant drama on day one. And as we say in the story, people moving goods, they'll begin to see disruption. I think a nuance we have in the story is that any disruption from the nodal Brexit might take a few days to build up. So that's one thing we try to show in the story, just because at first traffic flows might be fairly smooth, only as more and more vehicles go through, the kind of uh, congestion would start as French customs officials, for example, start checking goods and so on. So there's that on, on the Irish border. Again, we say that although there were no physical checkpoints introduced at first in the Irish border, farmers would still face tariffs, for example, on their exports cause prices to plummet and the sheep farmer I spoke to, he told me that I would have to slaughter all of my sheep if it were the case there was no deal Brexit. So those are just two examples from the story. Well, I love it. And you go from ports to sheep farmers, to bankers, to musicians. I mean, the sheep farmers have to think about if they're on the, you know, Irish border, right? They're kind of essentially, you know, going back and forth along uh, the border that they're going to be kind of breaking the law. Exactly. So Jazz McDonald, the farmer in the story, he has land in both the south and the north. And when he drives around his farm, he's constantly dipping in and out of the European Union, or he would be in a no-deal Brexit. And as you say, it would be smuggling, because the rules of the EU say if you're moving livestock into the EU from a non-EU territory, you have to go to a customs checkpoint. They have to be checked. And Jazz said to me, look, I, I, I shudder at the thought of having to go through checkpoints like that. He remembers the troubles from the 1980s right. when there was violence. You know, we had checkpoints attacked because it showed the partition in, in that country. So he, he said to me, it makes me shudder. Well, and, and one of the other things you point out is this this scenario where, you know, somebody's moving across the French border, you know, carrying car parts, which seems cool. But, you know, if there's like chocolate, maybe that's not. I mean, sort of the products that get caught up in all of this are, are really interesting to think about and really play into people's everyday lives. Exactly. So there'd be various knock-on effects. So if it were the case that a, a truck is held up uh, in Calais on the French side or indeed at Dover, I mean, it could be the case that you arrive at the border fully prepared with all your papers. But if there's a vehicle in front of you which wasn't prepared and they've caused a delay because they were getting their papers checked and they were wrong, you were prepared, but they weren't, and therefore you are disrupted as well. There will be knock-on effects, as you are saying, shortages of goods that will build up in the days of following in supermarkets, 
medicines would be affected. It, it, it would affect the whole economy, and this the effects would be quite significant. So, Joe, one of the things that I was sort of interested in how you guys did this was, you know, like you mentioned, you found characters and told a narrative of, of basically, a, you know, this postcard from the future. In talking to the sources that you guys found, I mean, you had both sides, people who voted to, to, to stay and also to leave. Has there been any change of anyone's minds about how they cast their vote? Funnily enough, of those I spoke to, very much still stuck in their in their view of, of, of whether they think Brexit would be a good idea or not. So the driver, for example, who we interviewed for the story, he voted leave, and he's a strong Brexit supporter. And indeed, he was of the view that there wouldn't be much disruption in a Brexit scenario, a no-deal Brexit scenario at all. So he had a very kind of optimistic, positive view of the future. Uh, Sheik Farmer Jazz, unsurprisingly, voted to remain because he could see the enormous disruption it would cause to his lives. And my sense is that people have by and large remain pretty committed ideologically to their views and it would take the acid test of real world events of a Brexit for um, for them to change perhaps. And how do they feel about Johnson? I mean he's still there. That's the assumption we make for this, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So so Roger Moore, the, the driver we have in our story, the Brexit supporter, he thinks Johnson's fantastic. He thinks that Johnson's prorogation of Parliament, that shutting down of Parliament, which was ruled unlawful only um, this week, he thinks that that was good. He, he fully supported that prorogation. He thought that Parliament has been blocking Brexit. He thinks that Parliament is you know, defying the will of the people. So there was that view that we had in the story. But then you had someone like Jasmine McDonald, who thought Johnson right. was or is a massive threat. And he'd been protesting against Boris Johnson only in the weeks after the story. Yep. Uh, when, when he came to visit Ireland. All right, Joe, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. It's a great story. Joe Mays, Brexit reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from London. Joel Weber, the editor, of course, of Bloomberg Business Week here in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Michael Sheldon, executive director and chief investment officer at RDM Financial Group, based in Westport. Uh, but he made his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Thursday. We've got stocks, as Charlie mentioned, definitely off their lows, but still down across the board. Uh, where shall we begin? I'm just curious how you saw this week. I mean, Jason and I were kind of marveling just on Tuesday, Wednesday, how much news flow had come down, both political, geopolitical, economic, and certainly market-driven or business-driven. How do you filter through and what do you focus on? Well, the biggest issues over the past few weeks have been the events in Saudi Arabia. There have been constant Trump tweets. Uh, There's the Fed having cut rates. So there's no shortage of issues for the markets and the investors. So the difficulty as investment advisors, just as you said, is to sort of look through the noise and try and focus on the longer term. So it's important as financial advisors that one of the things we do, we start off with a financial plan. Then we create the asset allocation, and then we focus on the investments. And we always try and think of the long term for investors. What's the rate of return you need to 
achieve your long-term investments and what kind of investments should you be in, what, should, what parts of the market are more favorable, where there are attractive opportunities. So it is easy to get lost in the minutia and the daily so noise none and of the this, truth like, like, I get that. No offense. But, you know, right, people always talk about you invest for the long term, like, right. you know, put on your blinders. None of this that's happening, though, affects any I, of your thinking? I think you really have to try and avoid. You have to focus on really the long term. And, you know, if you focused on every single Trump tweet, it would be very difficult and there are some companies that are in favor one day. They're out of favor the next day. Trump, because of Trump's tweets and his favorable oppressions of one industry versus another. So we try and take uh, – it's easier said than done, but we try and take a focus on the long term. And so when you think about the long term, especially here in the United States, it feels like you know the consumer – we talk about this a lot. Um, but I think rightfully so because it remains one of the big questions. You know, we – Think about the the notion that uh, you know the, the consumer remains strong, and yet CEOs are feeling a, a little bit cautious. Can that be sort of reversed in in the short term, or is that just something we're going to have to live with while we're living with this trade uncertainty? Well, the biggest issue for the markets really is the overhanging issue is the trade talks with China. I think that's the single most important issue affecting uh, sentiment overall economy, the outlook for the economy. So the problem or the risk really is that corporate CEOs become more cautious. They cut back on capital equipment spending. They reduce hiring. Ultimately, that reduces the amount of workers. And then we have a feedback loop, which has a negative impact on the economy. I think as we look ahead right now, the outlook for corporate profits is starting to improve. We've gone through a little bit of a growth recession. But the outlook is more, yeah, for this quarter, the third quarter coming up, the estimates are right now, according to facts, set for a decline of about 3.8%. That could go up. That could rise a little bit. Companies typically beat lowered estimates. Right. Last quarter, the second quarter, we had a slight decline of minus 0.4%. But as you look ahead to 2020, right now, the estimates are for about 10.6% EPS growth. And six out of 10 industries, really led by cyclical industries, are, foca- are forecast to post double-digit growth. Is but that because of easy comparisons or what? It's partly that as well. Okay. Uh, if you look back to the, set, the start of this quarter, earnings estimates for next year, again, were, were started out at about 11%, and now they're at 10.6. So they've come down a little. We think these estimates are, are a little too high, given the state of the global economy, and they will come down. And that could create a bit of a headwind for the markets heading into the fourth quarter as people sort of readjust their estimates. But so far, these numbers have held up pretty well. And I think one of the other things is um, if you – Thinking about the economy, in the economy's favor right now, this has been the weakest economic recovery in the post-World War II period. So we haven't had the kind of imbalances that typically result in excess inventories and excess wages and inflation. So that's, that's a big factor as well. Weakest and longest. Yes, the longest as well. Pretty wild. And so as you're talking to clients and, and colleagues, how worried are people about the economy, the global economy at this point, how much are they essentially bifurcating between uh, you know, the United States and, and overseas markets? Well, I think clients are rightfully concerned. There's been a lot of uncertainty in the markets. If you look at the economy, you could re- rightfully say that it peaked in the middle of 2018 at some point. GDP was over 3%, and now it's growing about 2%. Corporate profits were over 20 percent, and now they're, they've been negative the last two quarters, including this quarter, but they are forecast to increase. So it's important to try and cycle out all the negative news and focus on the long term. 
uh, as investment managers, we try and get on the right side of most of the major cycles. So, for example, our team has been overweight, the U.S. versus foreign, for the past several years. That's helped. We've been overweight. And still that way? It's still that way. What else? We've been overweight large cap versus small cap. And importantly, we've been overweight growth stocks versus value stocks. For the first time in several years, we're actually thinking about potentially adding a little bit more to value. So it would be sort of more along the middle of the style box. So those are some of the important trends to keep in mind. Michael, when does the momentum play kind of end? Because well, that, so much of the big cap, so much of what we're seeing, I think safe to say, is that momentum play. Yeah, that's a tough one to call. Momentum has typically done fairly well over multiple time frames. So it's not a cycle. It's not something that will really end unless the stocks within those sectors get widely overvalued, which in some cases we're starting to see a little bit of that. All right. So anything that worries you the most? I mean, is there something or is there something super worrisome about excuse me, everything that's going on in Washington? Or are you able to just kind of let that play out, let it sort of slide across the Bloomberg screen and you focus on it? And go things? get a PLT. <laughs> yeah. Well, plant, just, just write a plant, lettuce and tomato, the new McDonald's right. sandwich. You which learned is, that from Michael. I you're did, quoting him back I to him. I know I am because I'm blown away. I think it's, can I have a PLT? You're, you're more of an incognito sort of person. <laughs> more of a BLT kind yeah, of person. Well, <laughs> well, getting back to the markets, <laughs> just because the markets have done reasonably well and held up well, actually internals in the market, for example, this, the percentage of stocks above their 200-day moving average has done has actually improved in recent months. Just because the market's done well doesn't mean there aren't risks out there or concerns. So it's really accumulation of issues. We have $22 trillion of debt in the U.S., and that's only growing. The president is under potential impeachment, so that's a potential issue. There's $15 trillion of negative debt overseas. So there are plenty of issues, along with the manufacturing slowdown and weakness overseas in Europe. Right. So these are the kind of things we're trying to juggle. And at the moment, the service side or the consumer is in pretty good shape, and we're banking on that. But things may change. Well, and our Yelena Shaletova earlier saying, yep, the consumer spending, but the latest GDP data show that they're tapping into some of their savings, which isn't necessarily what we want to see. We want to see them be able to spend because wages are going up. Well, I'd say keep an eye on things like weekly jobless claims yeah. and consumer confidence and the household balance sheets. The savings rate is actually at multi-decades highs. Uh, it's actually improved in several in, over the past several decades or so. All right, Michael Sheldon, thank you so much. Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial. Thank you for your market outlook. Thank you for talking about PLTs. I feel informed. Yeah, we learned a lot today. I know. It's a good day. You're listening to Bloomberg <laughs> Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.